Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Fatima Sayed. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Investigative reporter at the National Observer. We are going to talk today about our creepy habit of constantly publishing dating pics of a serial killer. And we are going to talk about the super secret, semi-secret meeting of Canada's subsidy-hungry news bosses. I was there, and I will tell you about everything that I'm allowed to tell you. Again, all fun topics, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to be chatting about them with you. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Shoshana Litvak, Mohammed Adel Afzal, Scott Stevenson, Candice Cotier, Matthew Light, Stephen Crosby, Allison Lee, and Kevin Eman. My name is Kevin Eman, and I'm a service designer living in Victoria, British Columbia. I support Canada Land because it offers the kind of incisive media criticism, commentary, and political coverage I believe we require in a healthy democracy. I'm consistently impressed by the intelligence and diversity of the hosts, plus your brand of snark really aligns with my own. And Fatima, as I mentioned, this episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Yes, it is. 
You are a journalist who has filed an invoice or two in your time? I have filed many an invoice in my time, and FreshBooks is great. Very easy to use. Super easy to use, but everyone comes down to the same. The, the people who just have heard me again and again talk about it and will not be moved from their practice of just like, I can just type this up in Microsoft Word. I can just make a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. And it is to them that I address this. Yes, it costs money to do something that you could do for free. What does it cost you to lose a client? If you've got to chase somebody down for money and it becomes super unpleasant and they just don't do business with you, they don't hire you anymore, that's more than it's going to cost you for FreshBooks. But FreshBooks, they kind of act as like your agent. They send like automated emails like, hey, you haven't paid Jesse. Maybe you want to pay Jesse. It's not me bugging you. It's FreshBooks. Pin it on FreshBooks. There's like three or four other ways in which they help you keep your clients. They pay for themselves very quickly. They pay for themselves in the, in the time that they save you and tax time is coming. So it's a very good time to try your 30-day trial of FreshBooks. Go to freshbooks.com slash Canada Land and enter Canada Land in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Okay, let's talk about Bruce MacArthur. Okay, let's do it. So with some relief, I read that he had pled guilty, though I, I feel like we might learn less about the investigation and why it took the cops so damn long to take people seriously than if it had gone to trial. But of course, the effect of the trial on all of the families, I guess this is a mercy. This is a good thing. Yeah, I had I had mixed feelings about this as a reporter who was covering it from day one. It was sort of vindication on one hand where, you know, OK, it's done. It's over. You know, we can put it to bed. We can try and you know, get over a year of reporting that has been very intense and very emotionally taxing and just one shocking revelation after another. But on the other hand, it's, you know, is the case in any crime story, you still have questions and you still want answers. And I'm trying to convince myself that those answers aren't important because it's done. You know, he pled guilty. That's all that matters. Do we really want to know every single detail of how he did it, why he did it? Yes. I mean, I, we do. Like, we are fascinated with these killers. We are, like, I say this, like, I'm not defending it. I just watched the Ted Bundy tapes. Oh, I haven't seen them yet. I'm deliberately avoiding them. <sighs> but I get it. I get the appeal of, you know, understanding the psyche of an evil person who does crazy things. I feel like that's almost like this high-minded bullshit that we tell ourselves. Like, oh, I'm going to, I'm a scholar delving into the psyche. It's not, it's prurient, it's dirty, it's gross. Like, I'm as much a sucker for it as everybody else. But it's got me thinking, this Bruce MacArthur thing has me thinking about just how fascinated we are with these people. Because, okay, the Ted Bundy tapes was like, we, we have tapes where he was talking about what he did. And you, okay, I'm going to learn something. You don't learn it. He's not that interesting. You know, it's just a person. Like, there's people who have no empathy at all, all around us. I guess it's just kind of rare, thankfully, that people who combine that with violent inclinations and sexual gratification from killing people, like, you know, all the confluence of things that result in a serial killer are rare. So I guess that makes them kind of like freakishly interesting. But you don't like, you know, I spent four episodes with this Ted Bundy asshole. I didn't learn anything. He's not that interesting, you know? So now we're having this conversation again about Bruce MacArthur and, and, you know, a lot of the coverage. Should we be putting his photograph on the articles or the victims? And I think a lot of well-minded people are saying, you know, the victims. This is a story about the victims. Let's not glorify this guy. This is their story. And I'm like, that's a nice sentiment, but it's not their story. Like, I wouldn't want that to be my story. Like, I went looking for sex on the internet and just my luck, I ended up, you know, getting killed by a serial killer. I don't want that to be my story. I mean, we don't know how it happened, but... I think for me, and I'm wired weirdly, so this might just be me, 
I really don't care about Bruce MacArthur. Yeah. I only care about the depths of pain and tragedy he has created in these nine lives and their families that we still don't fully understand. You know, yesterday, Bruce MacArthur was trending on Twitter and at the same time, Hashtag remember Jan 29th was trending and there was just this weird mixture of tweets on my feed where you had like people saying the names of the victims of the Quebec mass shooting and then the names of the Bruce MacArthur victims. But what was trending was just Bruce MacArthur. Like that was the top trend. And it just it felt very odd to me that we care so much about the man, whereas I just like I've had conversations with these families that are going to stay with me forever. And yeah. I just I want that to be the focus. And I know that in 20 years time, we're going to have a best selling book on Bruce MacArthur. We're going to have a Netflix TV show. We're going to have documentaries like he's going to be like played by I can't think of an actor, but think of a white bearded actor who or, or someone who could put on a beard who looks like Bruce MacArthur. No, yeah, yeah, they could come up with a beard. <laughs> Christian they, yeah. Bale? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. That they, I mean, And that know, sucks. It does. That sucks. I will say Canada is actually pretty good with this stuff where we don't turn our serial Rob killers. Rob Ford has a movie, and I'm not comparing it. Paul, I'm just Paul saying. Paul Bernardo has no, and, and Carla <laughs> Homolka, like, I think they made something. Like, I think it's it's partly because we don't allow cameras into the court. Like, it, it's a double-edged thing, right? Like, a journalist should want a camera in, in the courtroom. The courts are supposed to be public. The fact that we don't allow that has prevented true crime from being the same entertainment complex that it is in the States, which is good, but it also means the public is not as engaged in the legal process, which is bad, but we have not glorified. I don't know. I mean, I definitely think that the turning serial killers into, you know, putting the camera on them constantly, constantly, constantly creates more serial killers. I think that's probably true. So it's, it's good that we don't do that. But, you know, look, I, I'm really struggling with a lot of this stuff. Like, your reporting, I think, was wonderful in, like, there are human beings here. Let's find out about these people, these victims. Let's let's learn about them and their lives. And let's learn something beyond just our sick fascination with this Bruce MacArthur character. I get that. I think that's a worthy thing to do. I also feel like if you went on the street of Toronto and asked, like, have you heard of Bruce MacArthur? Yes. And then name any one of the victims, the answer would be no. And they probably couldn't pronounce them either. Yeah, except for Andrew Kinsman, and I'm guilty as charged over here. Like, I, I, I'll have to refer to my notes here. If we're like, we'll do the respectable journalist thing and go through the. The thing is that those people's lives and their stories exist independent of the fact that they were victims of a serial killer. You know, and I don't know. I, I kind of struggle with like because they were victimized. Let's learn. Like, I, I'm sure that each of them would want their story to be a different story. You know. Yeah, I think I, I agree. No one wants to die that way. No family yeah. member wants <laughs> yeah. their relative to die that way. But I think that by focusing on the criminal, we often tend to make the victim a footnote yeah. in the criminal story. And I think that if this case has taught me anything personally, it's that it's the victims who are the story and it's the victims' families who are the story. Like, we're just just think about this, okay? We're talking about nine families scattered around the world who didn't even know. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them thought that they might still be alive, that their sons and their brothers might still be alive somewhere in Canada where they could not reach them. They were precarious. They were vulnerable. They were low income workers and no one knew what happened to them. And we didn't care until a criminal killed them. 
first of all, that's a problem with our justice system and our policing system. We we need to be having this conversation, which we've stopped, and we need to be having it more. Like, how do our police services handle missing persons? Is there a bias? How do we fix that bias? We need to be talking about race and what factor it plays in the handling of missing persons and precarious workers who do, you know, interact with crime and, and you know, seek justice. We need to be talking about isolation of these communities mm-hmm. and, and how... We are perpetuating the problem of crime by neglecting the most vulnerable among us. And we need to be talking about victim blaming. I remember us, you know, me and some of my fellow reporters at the Star earlier last year when we were reporting on it, we would get like horrific emails, like just hate mail about why are you like, you know, of course he got killed. He was gay and he was hiding it from his family. And that's sick, to put it very bluntly. But it was very easy for them to victim blame rather than, you know, look at the bigger picture and see, oh, this one man created tragedy for nine different families who were still trying to figure out how to deal with it. Did you ever hear this uh, quote? I don't know who said it. Uh, A society gets all the criminals it deserves. (laughs) Yeah, I've heard that quote. (laughs) I was thinking about that with the Ted Bundy thing. Like, I was trying to draw something out of this, like, you know, whatever five hours I put into this tawdry thing. Like, what was learned from this? And it was not the story of the victims. I mean, they, they are given no real attention or consideration in this thing. The thing that came out, and there is a parallel with Bruce MacArthur, the thing to be learned, for me anyhow, was the circumstances, the social, political, cultural circumstances that allowed this guy to do what he did for so long, right? The fact that you had this clean cut, I guess, by a certain kind of accepted standard, handsome, young Republican Nixon advisor guy in the late 70s who was like a law student, he had everything going for him to get away with it for a very long time, you know? And the the lesson of that Ted Bundy story for me, if there was one, just beyond like like the prurience of, of, of it, was uh, he wasn't a genius. He fucked up again and again and again. They knew who he was. They knew what kind of car he drove. He moved to another city. Nobody was warned. People started getting killed there. They never put the dots together. Like, and it had, a, it had something to do with the lack of technology at the time, but it also had a lot to do with the fact that this guy was the kind of person who everybody wanted to think the best of, who everybody want, kind of wanted, like, whatever situation he was in, people would trust him. He could say to a woman, hey, come out to my car with me. Something happened to your car. Let me show you. I'm a police officer. I'm a this. I'm a law student. And even when he was captured, they trusted him to, like, be in the law library of the courthouse unattended, so he escaped. There was a commentary on the society that allowed this guy, like, they could have caught him so much earlier. So many people could have, their lives could have been spared. Bruce MacArthur, you say you were covering this from day one. You've done wonderful reporting ever since Bruce MacArthur was arrested. There was a story long before Bruce MacArthur was arrested. Extra did it. Yeah. And, you know, I had the comedian Scott Thompson in this studio in the summer of 2015. And after we were finished, I've said this on the show before, after we were finished our interview, he said, you know, I think that there's a serial killer in the gay village. I don't know if this is the kind of story you're interested in, but can you look into it? It's not really my kind of story. Uh, I don't know if there was a media aspect and I don't have the expertise. I made a couple of phone calls to the um, the Toronto police officer who's the uh, LGBTQ you know, liaison, never heard a call, got a call back. The detective who'd been assigned to the case, one of the cases, the disappearances early on, never got a call back. Justin Ling was on it very early on. Bruce MacArthur, I think, also benefited from the fact that he was this older white guy, you know, he benefited from his relationships with his clients. And then I think he benefited from the fact that his victims, as you know, you were explaining, were completely marginalized people who were, you know, sometimes living double lives out of shame. There are all kinds of cultural 
political and economic and racial aspects that went in. Like, he knew what he was doing. And it's no accident that it was Andrew Kinsman, uh, the one white victim, and the fact that like that was somebody who the community rallied around and there were posters up. And then that finally spurred the cops. Like Ultimately, what we're going to learn through this is going to be about like, you know what I mean? Like criminals know how to like target a society's vulnerabilities. And our vulnerability is that there's some people we care about more than others. Yeah. And that's an unfortunate truth. I think the biggest tragedy of human society in the 21st century is that we don't care about things until something horrific like this happens. We didn't care about Rohingya refugees until they were, you know, forced out of their homes in like a mass extension. We didn't care about Syrian refugees until Alan Kurdi died. We care about certain tragedies that happen in Europe over tragedies that happen in the Middle East or Africa or something like that. The dichotomy is very real. And I think if this the conversation around Bruce MacArthur has taught us anything, I hope that it's the fact that we need to listen to all of our communities and really pay attention to what they're saying. Because, you know, the gay village was saying for years that there's a serial killer among us and Mm -hmm. no one was paying attention. There was a Toronto police investigation years ago that just died and no one followed up and no one held them accountable. They had the guy in custody for a while and let him go. I think we need to listen to everyone, especially the marginalized, especially the vulnerable, because they're the ones who are going to be the target of whatever bad thing happens next. And if this has taught us anything is we got to be proactive. We got to do outreach. We got to listen. We got to protect them. Like, why are undocumented workers going into hiding? Why don't we have a system to protect Karushna Kumar, who ended up being Bruce MacArthur's youngest victim? Why don't we have systems in place for people like him? I hope that we're more proactive. I hope Toronto Police is more proactive. I hope governments start being more proactive. I hope the probe that they're doing into how police conduct missing person searches becomes more proactive and more on the ground, you know, outreach based community work. Yeah. Because that's the lesson. Like at the end of the day, we could, you know, talk about Bruce MacArthur till we go blue in the face. And there's going to be tons of things to talk about. And yeah, I get it. It's entertaining. And I think you call it, we have a sick fascination with him for sure. But the domino effect of what he did is huge. And that's what I want to be talking about nonstop. And that's what I hope we're all talking about nonstop. Because he's going to be in jail till he's 91. That's it. That's done. Someone down the line will get an interview with him and will, you know, learn some things. But those families, they're going to be forgotten about as of yesterday. Mm-hmm. Like, they're gone. They're gone home. You know? One of them Skyped into the court. You know, they they asked for audio. They weren't even able to come. We're yeah. We're going to forget about them. What about the picture? Kathy English, public editor of The Star, uh, she thinks that it's okay to run that picture of him uh, posing, you know, squinting when he's doing his best George Clooney at Niagara Falls from his Facebook page. It's the only picture we had. Yeah. I mean, it's the only picture we had. And I get it. Like, you want criminals to look a certain way and be presented a certain way. But at the end of the day, that's who he was. He was just a dude in Canada who visited Niagara Falls, and that's who he was. And I get why people are mad, but that's the only picture we had. You know, we didn't yeah. have the the police handout. At some point, there was a second one that was equally controversial. I think that the photograph was uh, a useful illustration as opposed to the, beyond just being a picture of the person that you're writing about, because 
there's something haunting about it because it does show the, the that he was an ordinary guy. Not just an ordinary guy, but he he's posing in that photograph. And uh, this is a story about a guy who posed to the world and lured people by the way that he presented himself. So you're, you're getting a creepy view as to uh, like what you might have seen if you were like encountering him online before you went to meet him. And that was part of why it was an evocative image that like beyond the star, everybody ran and ran and ran. At this point, now that we have the court drawings, now that we have the grid of the victims' faces, which has been running a lot. Do you think it's immoral for media to be running Bruce MacArthur's picture? I didn't think it was immoral at the beginning. I think we were all mad that we didn't have the police handout because we didn't want to put this smiling white guy mm-hmm. on the front page of every newspaper. You wanted a mugshot. We wanted a mugshot. Why and don't the cops always – like what happened there? Do you know? I don't. I'm not one to speak to it, but it's a procedural thing. But if it's the only shot we had, like you want to know what that person looks like, right? And yeah. if that's the only shot we had, then that's the only shot you use as a, as a media organization. And, you know, we explained our reasoning and, and people still got mad about it. So it is what it is. But I, I never thought it was a big deal at the time because I'm like, well, for lack of alternative, what else are we going to use? This is a totally other topic for like, you know, a bigger take on a different show. But I, I, I'm here talking with you. How are you doing? Like, like <laughs> it, 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 I've, you know, spent a lot of time covering pretty depressing and dark subject matter myself. And it has a way of seeping into your consciousness and, you know, your, your personal, your private life. Like, uh, you know, it's not anything that you're obliged to discuss with me, but I think that like we actually happen to be talking. God, I hate that we've actually accepted this, that Bell gets to name the day of the year that we talk about mental health. Fuck them. Anyhow, it's Bell Mental Health Day. It's Let's Talk Day. Do you, I don't know, we should do a whole show on journalism and, and mental health, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious, somebody who, who covered MacArthur and his victims. I think it's been hard. And I think, uh, Yesterday was especially hard because of the confluence of, you know, the anniversary, the two year anniversary of the Quebec mosque shooting. And I'm Muslim. And, you know, that had a profound effect on me. And then, you know, the the guilty plea from Bruce MacArthur. It was a confluence of emotions. And I had to take a breather (laughs) in that day just to, you know, calm myself down. But, yeah, it does take a toll on you. There are things that are going to stay with you for a long time. And I had that because I interviewed some of their family members. And that's those conversations are going to stay with me. And if I ever saw them again, like I would probably have a breakdown a little bit, emotional breakdown on the inside. But yeah, definitely. I think it's been a hard year. 2018 was a hard year for Toronto crime, mm-hmm. um, led mm-hmm. in part and largely by the Bruce MacArthur case. And I think a lot of journalists, I hope a lot of journalists get a vacation after this guilty plea before they start covering more Bruce MacArthur things, because I'm sure there's more down the line. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody – Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. 
And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Fatima, we may not agree on one of the greatest satirists of uh, English literature, but certainly we can agree that some stories have not been noted duly and need to be duly noted. I agree. Have you something? I do. So yesterday was a big day for the news cycle. We talked about Bruce MacArthur. I mentioned the Quebec shooting anniversary. Something that got lost in it is that Montreal's Tio Taxi, which is a competitor with Uber, or it was an Uber competitor, ended. Like their operations ended. So Tio Taxi sought to take on Uber in Montreal with a fleet of electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. It was very innovative. It halted its operations yesterday and laid off all of its drivers. We're talking 400 drivers. It was launched in 2015 in an attempt to modernize the taxi industry and improve mobility in Montreal and also improve the environment at the same time. Now, here's the cool thing about Tio Taxis, or was the cool thing about Tio Taxis. Their drivers were salaried. Uh They were unionized. According to their website, they were also entitled to paid leave and annual vacations. Uber's drivers are none of these things. We may be finding out why that business didn't work out. (laughs) All the electric cars in their fleet were owned by the company. They were set to provide cost savings of up to 15% and prevent 5,000 tons of greenhouse gases going into our atmosphere. The drivers earned $15 an hour, which was $4.25 more than Quebec's minimum wage. They worked eight-hour shifts, received benefits, and had a pension plan, and were eligible for compensation in case of injury. It was a cool business idea. They might have done it not so well, and it unfortunately did not survive. And this poorly executed, really great business idea, I fear, might embolden climate skeptics to start arguing that, oh, look, an electric car innovative idea didn't work, so we don't need electric cars. And in an age where electric cars are dying or based on what the Doug Ford government is doing anyway, where they're removing electric car charging stations Mm -hmm. and they're removing incentives for electric cars, although we're still waiting to find details of that. I think Tio Taxi was a great idea. It would have been cool if they stuck around and we should be talking about them more and we should be learning more about them. So Google it, learn more about Tio Taxis, and um, that's my duly noted. It could have been the electric car aspect. Probably not. It probably was treating the employees fairly part that didn't work out in the market. It might have been both, yeah. Could have been, <laughs> duly noted. May I note something duly for you? Please do. It's a tweet uh, by Andrew Shear that got a bunch of attention. It's actually, no, it's not a tweet from Andrew Shear. It's a fucking shit post on Meta Canada, the super disgusting little extreme right corner of Reddit, where some idiot decided that they were really offended by the fact that if you Google Canadian soldier, a picture of Omar Khadr pops up amongst the Canadian soldiers. Andrew Scheer, within a matter of hours, decided, my guess is just that, like, it has been decided amongst the Conservative Party of Canada, like, every time we say Omar Khadr, we win. 
you know, under any circumstances to get people angry about Omar Khadr, do so. So he picked up this meme from Meta Canada. Like, that's where he's getting his stuff now and spread it out. Jerry Butts, Justin Trudeau's chief advisor, corrects Shear incorrectly and says, hey, Andrew Shear, don't you know something to the effect of your Google search results are not my Google search results? I am not getting a picture of Omar Khadr on this list of, of soldiers. And I then picked it up and said, do I have this straight? Is this what happened here? Did Sheer pick up this Reddit thing and then not realize that this was actually tailored to his search habits? And in fact, uh, I did not have it right. The Google guru of search himself stepped down from the cloud and said, no, uh, this was our error. His picture should not have been there and we have removed it. And what can we learn from this? I think everybody looks like a bit of a putz, um, myself included, because I do think that uh, I stand by my assertion that this was an idiotic meme but the idiocy was not sheer not knowing how Google worked. It was Gerald Butts who didn't know how Google worked. And to some extent, I didn't know how Google worked. I think the problem here is that Andrew Shear was getting really mad at a robot. Like Google is like, like this isn't some hallowed hall of the greatest Canadian soldiers of all time, Order of Canada or Medal of Valor. Like it's just a fucking search engine searching for the terms Canadian and soldier. And then like, you know, you're most likely, if you're searching for those words, here's what other people have been looking for. And then Omar Khadr popped up because he was a child soldier and he was Canadian. So his name and face got on that list. So Andrew Shear's like really mad at a robot. Like how dare, like, you know who else's face was on that list of Canadian soldiers, Fatima? Who else? Russell Williams, the serial killer. Because when people Google Canadian soldier, often that's who they're looking for. So nobody was mad that Russell Williams is in this hallowed hall of Canadian soldiers. So we're all a bunch of idiots. The bottom line here, I think, though, is that Andrew Shear is really like just digging for rage bait in the ugliest of places. And um, that is a story from Twitter that I wish to duly note. Duly noted. And might I add that I think the real tragedy is that there was no retraction. Do you realize that we live in an age where, where people can just say anything on Twitter and, and these days we're not seeing them retract or apologize for their tweets? Whether it's, you know, Jason Kenney saying that a church was is going to face a $50,000 bill because of the carbon tax, which was completely false. Yeah. Or it's Andrew Shearer sharing a weird Google meme about Omar Khadr, and we, none of them sort of apologize or retract that information and say that, sorry, that was false. Won't do well, it again. <laughs> hey, you know as well as I do that we get very technical when it comes to retractions. There's no retraction for being an idiot or for uh, dog whistling, right? So Andrew Shear, technically, there was nothing incorrect in his tweet. I get off the hook, too, because I asked, do I have this right? So I don't have to retract either. The only person who actually spread misinformation, if we're going to be technical about it, was Gerald Butts. You know, but I, I, th there should be some form of retraction of like, yeah, that was uh, – I was being a schmuck. So uh, let's, let's – uh, which I guess is exactly what I just did. Duly noted. <laughs> So, Fatima, I don't know what you did last weekend, but I went to a secret meeting of the news bosses of Canada. Ooh, exciting. Tell us more. I will tell you everything that I'm allowed to tell you. It's the second meeting like this that I've gone to as this news bailout process. Um, I, I was invited very similarly in the very early stages to come, and they said, you can come and have a seat at the table as we discuss a possible federal government news subsidy, but you cannot say who was there, and you cannot say who said what. But you can say that it happened and that you went and you can kind of talk in broad strokes about it. And this was like a tricky decision for me because I cover the media. So I don't like agreeing to gag orders of any kind. And I have this kind of like internal discussion with myself like, well, am I better knowing the stuff or not knowing it or knowing it, but I can't talk about it. And then, of course, I also run a media company. So like I have like an interest in this process. Were you invited as an observer or as a participator? As a participant. 
as a participant. But I, I made it clear. I'm like, look, I need to be able to talk about this in some form. So they set out Chatham House Rule, which is like, as I say, you know, no particulars. But I, I can tell you, I'll tell you what I can tell you. It was run by a group called Luminate, which is this nonprofit that uh, is part of the Omidyar group. You know, the multi-tech zillionaire Pierre Omidyar, the guy behind The Intercept. So he throws this thing, a very sexy title, Public Investment in Journalism, a Collaborative Policy Development Workshop. As titles go, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it rolls off the tongue. And it was uh, held like in, you know, kind of unlisted in some room at this uh, Democracy Exchange Democracy Summit. The whole thing is kind of for the Democracy Exchange Summit, which I think like one of the guys behind it is like a guy, a navigator. I don't know, like untangle this stuff. So this is at Ryerson University. Anyhow, what can I tell you? We sat around, the idea was getting stakeholders together. And I can't tell you who was there, but I can tell you that like, if you think about who are stakeholders in a media bailout, you know, the unions, the media organizations themselves, government's a stakeholder, whoever organizationally you might think of as a stakeholder was represented, I guess with one exception, the public. There was nobody there representing the public. But I was not there to be a pain in the ass, necessarily. Because the conceit of this thing was like, look, the debate is over of whether or not we should have a new subsidy. You know, the die is being cast. There's a new subsidy. So we're not here to, to debate whether or not we should have one or not. And I grumble a little bit because I don't think we ever really had a real national debate about that. But, but they're right. It's a done deal. It's happening, you know. So the conceit of this thing was we're going to get together and accept that it's coming and put the stakeholders in a room to figure out the best application of this money. What's the best way to spend it? And further, the whole idea that we were there under was like, the government's been very clear. They're not bailing out a failing industry. They're not here to save failing business models, but they're recognizing that there's a crisis in news coverage. There's legislatures that have no reporter. We're, we're in trouble, people. So we've got $120 million a year to get journalism, civic democracy, served by that kind of journalism, back. And, and let's put these people together to figure it out. So did you figure it out? I think we kind of did. What did you figure out? Well, the first thing I figured out is that the conceit was total bullshit. The conceit that we were not there just to figure out who gets the money, that we were there to save democracy and make sure there's enough journalism for democracy. So the first thing I figured out was kind of a negative thing because you go around the table and it instantly became... Who should get the money? Companies like mine. And so if somebody was there with, from a company that they considered to be uh, a big company that had a big audience, they said, well, this should be determined by how big your audience is. And then other people who were from companies where they felt like, well, we have the best values. They said it should be values-based. And other people said, well, no, it should be about innovation, uh, startups. And no, it should be innovation-based as to who gets. So everybody had their own idea that was like a thinly disguised version of like me. I get the money, my thing. I don't want to be left out. And I chimed in to say, dudes, it doesn't fucking matter. Like, however you define what a journalist is, which, by the way, like, academics can't figure out. Like, it's, it's a fascinating question, but not one the government's going to figure Whatever. You could define it by how well stuff is verified or what kind of journalism or whether you're innovative. But all roads lead to Rome. And by Rome, I mean Paul Godfrey. Like, like it's all going to go. If you define it as for innovation only, then it'll, tomorrow Postmedia will open up Postmedia Innovation Labs. You know? If you define it by covering the legislature, well, who, who hires the most legislative reporters? This is all like the biggest thing here is that if you don't want it to be a newspaper bailout, then don't make it a newspaper bailout and cap the total amount of money that any organization can get low. 
cap it at like $500,000, which is nowhere near enough money to save any newspaper, but would mean the world to, if you look at like, you know, the sprawl in Alberta or like Cook West doing Indigenous News Out East, or if you look at what you guys are doing, you know, the Vancouver Observer slash National Observer, that would be a lot of money for an organization like that. So if you're trying to stimulate true local journalism, uh, put a cap on it was my input. But that's not what I learned. You asked me, did we solve it? And? So the guy who ran the thing, who moderated it, is this guy, Ben Scott, who's a former Obama administration guy, and he served under uh, Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. And, you know, I didn't agree with a lot of what this guy had to say. Like, the first thing he did was congratulate Canada for having this subsidy, you know, like, as if we just all had accepted that it was a great thing. But he did say something that totally, totally brought me around on how this could work in in a positive way. Because I'm really focused on the wage subsidy which is going to be the biggest expenditure of this. That's where most of the money is going to get paid out. But there's another part of it, which is a 15% tax subsidy on subscriptions, right? So the news consumer, like, I don't want to take a check. Like, I don't want to be in a position where I have to decide whether or not I take a check from government or not. Like, that's a dirty thing to ask a journalist to do. But if you say to the news consumer, we're going to give you a rebate on your subscription and all the money goes there, then you're allowing the public to decide who's a journalist and who isn't. And you're removing the journalist from any conflict of interest. And I could say... When it's time to crowdfund, hey, if you give us $5 a month, the government will give you 250 back. Or if you're already giving us $5 a month, why don't you raise it to 10 because you're going to see half of it back. You'll stay at 5 We would see a huge boost in our revenue and we'd have none of these conflict of interest problems. But it would have to be more than 15%. Like I think it should be a 50% subsidy and I think they should get away with this wage subsidy. So I got kind of policy wonky in the room, as you can see. But I actually came out of it thinking like, okay, in a perfect ideal world, I don't think government should have anything to do with this. But if they're going to have something to do with it, this is a, like, that's a pretty good solution. And then government gets out of the unfortunate job of having to decide who's a journalist and who isn't which is going to just, they're in for a world of hurt if they put themselves in that position. That's just going to be like, that's going to bite them in the ass again and again and again. So you're feeling hopeful about this? No, no. The money's all going to go, like like almost all the money is going to go to the entrenched players. Like that's so super clear. I have questions. Yes. What percentage of this room was not white? I think that there was one indigenous person and one Asian person. And what percentage of the room was rich? I don't know. But if you're asking, was this a room of like downtown... Toronto, media elite, upper middle class, too wealthy. Absolutely. And you, your finger is right on this here, okay? Like, they were so fucking out of touch. Like, they thought the crisis in news is simply that journalists are getting laid off. Wait, wait. So what percentage were journalists? Oh, hmm. I mean, some of them had been journalists who went on to management positions. But 25%, maybe? 25 to 50% were journalists? And what percentage were female? There you're doing a bit better. Um, I think it was like 30 to 40%. And was there any local news representation? No. <laughs> no. I have a list of all the names, so I can check this later. But uh, yeah, there was nobody there from... It's funny you should bring up local news. Well, look, this is the problem. Because that's, that's I, what we were there supposedly to solve for. <laughs> this is the problem. I love journalism. I wouldn't be a journalist if I didn't love it because, you know, this is not the most glamorous job, nor does it, you know, benefits, pay, etc. But if the industry is really honest with itself, the bailout will fail if we don't innovate, adapt, and reflect the communities that we're meant to engage with. And that doesn't just mean the city of Toronto. That means, you know, the obscure small towns across Ontario and BC and across Canada. In the past 10 years, about 16,000 Canadian journalists have lost their jobs. Um, More than two dozen daily and 220 weekly newspapers have been merged or shut down. And there simply aren't that many professional full-time journalists in Canada anymore. And if we're not talking about that, which is the basic surface-level problems, 
then no amount of money that you throw at a problem will fix it until you have a hardcore proper conversation. So I am not an expert on the bailout. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know what it should look like. All I know is that the industry is at a tipping point and we're not talking about it and we're just throwing money at a fire. <laughs> at a dumpster fire. Okay. Maybe. Uh, if that's not exaggerating the problem too much. <laughs> but here's the thing. You have really legitimate and interesting questions. They have answers. They have none of your uncertainty. They're not opening anything up for debate. But do they have answers to my questions? They would say yes. They would say, if you're saying that the problem is that we've lost 16,000 journalists, well, who is in the best position to keep journalists employed? Postmedia, Globe and Mail. The Toronto Star chain. But then they're uh, not the being, Irving family. The Irving family. The Thompson. We're talking about billionaires. But like, Jesse, if that's their answer, then they're not being honest about the landscape of Canadian media or media around the world, which is changing drastically. I've worked for The Walrus, which is a nonprofit magazine. I've worked for the Toronto Star, which yeah. is a mainstream, huge Canadian wide organization. And now I work for National Observer, which is a digital only, mm -hmm. you know, small but focused, you know, media organization. And I have seen how all three operate, and there's no right answer, but they're all trying to figure out a way to survive in an online-only news place where readers aren't going to pay. And we're not talking about that. We're not talking about things are changing. They're not trying to figure out how to survive. This is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you. Like, I was there in the room. But you were in the room. Why didn't you make them talk about oh, it? Oh, I did my very <laughs> best. But nothing has changed since, like, what was it, two or three years ago when I was first in the room. You have never met a group of news professionals, there's some exceptions, who know less about these digital changes or care less than the established entrenched players who are there. You're trying to contend with the actual thing, you know, like, like we're in crisis, we need to be trying different things, we need to be looking at things that work, we need to be solving the problem in a practical way, not just by making it subsidized indefinitely. See, that sounds good to me. <laughs> there, there was no curiosity about that, there was no exploration, and there was not even like a professional level of like, these were not people who were well-read or researched about those things. This is where it stands. I'm telling you from, I saw it with my own eyes, there's nothing wrong with the Canadian media that more money from the federal government won't fix, was the attitude of this room. The first thing that got brought up was, how do we get more money, okay? Then, when we finally got to discussing the public, right, who supposedly were there for, were supposedly there to make sure the public gets the journalism that they need, it was framed under the heading of public perception, right? And I was sort of like upbraided for calling it a news bailout. Here are some quotes, but I can't tell you who said them. Okay, sometimes the way out of these problems is changing the language. So there was a discussion, we shouldn't be calling it a news bailout, we have to call it something different. Rebranding was explicitly discussed. A representative of a group that was not journalists themselves says, journalists are really bad at selling things to the, to the public, we can provide cover for this. So this was essentially a market, it became a marketing meeting. How are we going to sell the public on the news bailout? Okay. There was no discussion. It's like, is this viable in the long term? How could, like, how can we keep this going? And to your point about these communities and these local journalists, if we actually were talking about what actually might be working, there is a model. Like, like we're in this moment now where, like, you know, BuzzFeed just had all these layoffs and Vox and, you know, vices, like, and who knows what's going on there. So what were once the great hopes, which were really just speculative bubbles, those are getting popped. And so now it's like, oh, nothing works. But there is actually something that is working. And that thread that went around, around the whole economy of newspapers over the last, you know, 100 years that went viral, it points to this. Tiny little local news operations are working. 
tiny ones where you get like some mid-career journalist laid off who goes knocks on doors and gets a few bucks from his neighbor or her neighbor to start covering the legislature. So you're seeing people practicing journalism the way that some people open up a barber shop. And we have it in Canada too. We have the Halifax Examiner and we have the Vancouver Observer, which became the National Observer. And we have uh, Joey Coleman's public record in Hamilton. Like, I don't know. Is, is the Thunder Bay podcast local news? Does that qualify? Like there, there's no indication that a newspaper lobby group uh, would be interested in. Who knows? Maybe they'll come up with some way of getting some of the money to new digital players to say that they did. But like, don't be fooled. The newspaper lobby group is there for the newspaper industry. I don't know how to respond to that other than to say that, you know, if you were a Canadian in 2018 and you were impressed by the Bruce MacArthur coverage or by the Toronto Van Attack coverage or by the numerous investigations that journalists have done across the country, then you should be speaking up and saying, this is what we like about our journalism. This is how we think you should support it, you being the government. And, you know, this is what we want to see more of. I think... There's a lack of diversity in Canadian media still that needs to be addressed, and that mm -hmm. can't be addressed until we actually, you know, direct money and resources to that problem. And providing umbrella funding to people or organizations that won't filter down to the people who are actually doing the work, who are hitting the pavement and going after the story and spending hours in a day. Like, I can tell you, I've worked... 18-hour days sometimes as a journalist just to get the story. And, you know, sometimes without overtime, I'm not naming any organization. This is when I was a freelancer. Um, but it happens. And I think people, even if they don't pay for it, they value our stories and they value our work. So the questions I'm asking is something everyone should be asking. And I think the public knows that journalism is important. I think we treat them stupidly, which is problem number one. They are not stupid. They understand the value of news. If they didn't, they wouldn't be reading it. If they didn't, they wouldn't be interacting with it. And I think people do interact with good stories wherever they come from. So my question to the government would be, if you really care about journalism, then come and have these conversations with the people who are doing it. Yeah. Come and have these conversations and let us tell you what the problems are and and put the money in the places that will create change. Don't make this a PR stunt. If th what you're saying is true, put the money in places that will actually create change, that will make media more diverse, more inclusive, more broad, and it will cover all kinds of communities and all kinds of issues across Canada. Hey, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> I don't think that this is a PR stunt. I think this is a status quo play. I think that this is a, a, they want to keep things the way that they are. They don't want the media to collapse and it, it just to be like, you know, Ezra Levant and uh, a bunch of Reddit memes and, you know, me. And, like you know, like, like they want to have trusted places, whether it's a little bit right or a little bit left, they can get their message out. I mean, I'm optimistic and I like to think that it's a recognition of a problem. I just don't think they haven't gotten to the how do we act properly address the problem so that it creates a good solution. What happened in typical Canadian fashion is that the public conversation that you were suggesting was formally solicited as part of the original process. There was like town halls where the public was invited. It wasn't well attended. It wasn't well publicized. Nobody really participated. And we didn't because a lot of the conversation was mediated through the press that had a such a significant public interest in this. It didn't really get that much attention. And so that's done. They got all their opinions from the public. And now they moved on to this next stage. What's happening now and this, I think, was the most significant thing that nobody was talking about in that room that I was in on Saturday, is that the public perception has already turned toxic. And not amongst people who want to positively contribute and say what they want the media to be, but by people who have taken the news of this media bailout and 
basically poisoned the well and said, oh, you're all a bunch of Justin journos, and this is proof positive that you're all in the pocket. And even HuffPost reporters are getting called, Justin Trudeau is paying your salary. Fucking HuffPost is a Verizon company. They're not getting any of this money. Nobody's gotten any of this money yet, but they've already introduced into the media ecosystem the idea that we're all just getting paid by the government. And the amount of discredit that that is heaping upon any journalist and journalism itself is as big a crisis, I think, as the financial crisis that journalism is facing. Like, there is an effort that we are inheriting from the states to just discredit. Like, even if we get journalists in all those legislatures, we're getting to a point where, like, we're so hated. We're so out of touch with how hated we are. We really are. Like, I like, don't think we're out of touch with how hated we are. <laughs> I don't think I am anyway. We keep telling the public, we work so hard, we're working overtime, we're doing this for you. And the public's like, you're a fucking liar and you're, and, you know, learn to code. That's the new hashtag for all the laid off journalists. Learn to code. There's such an ugly rancor towards journalists. And yes, we can just dismiss that. We can recognize that it exists here and dismiss it. So then it, let's but... spend the money on media literacy. Let's let's spend the money fixing that. I mean, but again, this is a vicious cycle that we can keep talking on and on about because when you have, you know, the top leaders of the world calling legitimate investigative reporters fake news, there's no battling that because that leader comes with his own base supporters and followers and you know hardcore believers so we need more media literacy maybe that's where the money should be going or part of the money should be going to educate the public like i know see i'm i'm a pakistani girl you know there are not a lot of us in the journalism industry and i've sat down with like aunties and uncles and like you know they asked me what is it what do you what is it that you do mm -hmm. and i've sat down with them and had these conversations and then they get it and then they'll go to national observer and they'll read my stuff so why the can't we be doing like that your aunties and uncles, they can be educated okay you know what the next time i get an invite to a secret meeting if you're not invited as I'm well i'm coming i'm giving you my ticket i'm crashing it i promise <laughs> That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you. That's my, I, I can be reached at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We're on Twitter at Canadaland. Where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Fatima B. Syed, S-Y-E-D. And people can email me too at Fatima at nationalobserver.com. We have a website. It's canadalandshow.com. There you can read a report by the producer of this episode, David Crosby, on Yellow Vest Canada, a group of people who fucking hate journalists. If you want to know more about that, you can also listen to a wonderful episode of Oppo this week, which is all about China. And I learned things I did not know. Check that out. Like I said, this episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication by CFU. UV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you want to get podcasts from us that have no ads on them at all, you can achieve both of those goals by supporting us at patreon.com slash Please do. 